0: There's probably the longing inside me as a kid for normality as well. What impact did my grandfather have on me at an early age? I probably don't even know the answer to that. You know, I, I probably don't even know what those big photos at home and above dad's bed of him hitting the winning runs and being the Brill Cream Boy, and then I came here, and did my ego get me carried away? Probably. You know, Did I see that as success? And anything underneath that just wasn't tolerated, and unfortunately, that wasn't healthy because anything that wasn't Brian Lara, Sachin Tendulkar, give or take, was a failure. It just wasn't good enough. It didn't matter who told me it was or who told, you know, it wasn't good enough. And I think maybe the photography is maybe getting closer to just being normal, being with people with real stories and lives and emotions.
1: Welcome to Self-Centered. Now, this month being the start of a new year and under unique circumstances, of course, I'm gonna focus on the idea of renewal, as it's a great opportunity, I think, for all of us to reassess our habits, our values, our lives. Who is that person I really am? What is truly important in my life? These are the questions that indicate to us whether we are indeed on a path that is authentic, has real meaning to us, and is an expression of our true purpose. I'm delighted to say this week my guest is Nick Compton. And if you're a fan of cricket, the name Compton will no doubt be familiar, as Nick is one of the top cricketers of his generation, having made centuries for England and played in the Ashes. As the grandson of Arsenal footballer and legendary cricketer Dennis Compton, he's sporting royalty and yet Nick is no ordinary sportsman. Since retiring from the game in 2016, he's followed his passion of photography and traveled the world to places like India, Kenya, and deprived parts of America, exposing through the lens the culture and society of less privileged people than himself. He describes photography as a meditation, and says that even during his career, it provided an outlet, and a way for him to really express himself. And it's his description of his journey that I think is of real value here. You see, Sometimes when we follow the shiniest object, pursue or career, we can have success. And in Nick's case, on a global scale. And yet there might be something else, another calling that just won't go away. And that's okay. Changing tact in looking to follow our real passion is never a failure, quite the opposite. All of us collectively finding our purpose individually is vital if we're to build a better society and begin to tackle some of the huge challenges we're all facing. I've never heard anyone in sport speak so honestly about things like this, and I really hope it gives you the strength to follow your passions this new year, even if that means embarking on a new road less travelled. I started by asking Nick what purpose meant to him. I think for me it's always been very goal-driven,
0: I think, growing up to a family that had some fame, uh, a grandfather who probably transcended his sport back in the forties and fifties. I think, you know, when I try and look back at that question, I, I look at perhaps the impact of some of the early images um, and the imagery of him, you know, hitting the winning runs in the ashes, playing, scoring two goals in the FA cup final. And, and these kind of things that, you know, sort of probably built, built up in my mind. And I think from a very early age, success, purpose, was wrapped up in achieving something uh, as a sportsman um, and as a cricketer. And, uh, you know, I, I try and, it was, did it come from my parents? No. Um, I think it was very innate. I think there was a, a deep hunger drive and ambition inside me to achieve some of the things that perhaps he did. And more importantly, some of the the immediate professionals around me were achieving. And I think the the concept of purpose is something that I feel that it comes very deep. I think it has to, has to live somewhere deep inside you. It has to give you that reason to really get up, to be excited, to be motivated. Um, and I, I think if it's not quite there, I think you can try and push yourself, but you almost feel like you're flogging a dead horse. So for me, that purpose has been a a drive and an ambition and a, and a deep hunger that's hard to explain. And I felt that the real definition of it for me was that that is the only thing that matters in my life, if I'm really honest with you. Now, is that healthy? Is that unhealthy? That's a different question, but I think that would be my sort of de- definition and definitely my concept, you know, as I grew, grew up in in South Africa and then latterly came to came to England.
1: Well, you took my next question, actually, because it sounds like because of your history, your family history, and let's be honest, <laughs> the uniqueness of your grandfather being – top class footballer and cricketer i know it was slightly more common then but it was hardly a common occurrence did that weigh heavily in terms of purpose on your shoulders was it something that you found drove you forward in a healthy way or was it indeed a weight around your neck in a way
0: you know it's funny i, I obviously i've been asked the question about grandfather etc i think that question or or his impact was more prevalent when i came to england i think as a young uh, sport mad, should I say, South African boy growing up in a in a place where, of course, sport is, is very a very prominent part of um, culture in South Africa. I, I think, for me, the images I have are more of the immediate professionals that were playing in South Africa at the time. And actually, while it was nice having this sort of legacy and this, this grandfather, and while I was proud of him, I wanted to achieve the things that you know, uh, let's say Mark Ramprakash or Michael Vaughan or um, Jacques Callis and, and the Brian Lara, the, these guys that were playing at the time. That's what I wanted. And I definitely don't think it was a huge family pressure. Um, my dad and mum supported me. Um, I think my dad, you know, was passionate about what I wanted to achieve and, and wanted me to succeed. But it, it's a funny one. I, I actually feel there was something just inside me um, that – Just for whatever reason, kind of this is it. This is what I have to do. Um, And I think latterly, when I went to England and my grandfather held my hand and walked me around Lords, he was the president at the time. And of course, we went to the Compton Stand. And I remember walking onto the hallowed turf, and you know, not many got to do that because you know, even putting one foot on the grass at Lords, you know, you get a you get a smack on your hand if if you're caught anywhere near it. So you can imagine my eyes just like soccer balls, you know, um, thinking this is where it's at. This, this is incredible. Um, and then the legacy, of course, of my grandfather and, and people would come up to me and talk and, and that grew. But I think initially to try and answer the question, I, I think there was, a, there was an excitement behind, I want to achieve some of the things my grandfather did. You know, I want some of that. I, I want to be special. Um, and I, I don't want to use that word special in a, it can be a dangerous word. And I, and I think I've seen the danger of it, but I think in the same sense, there was a purpose to
1: live, you know, let's go and achieve something great. You mentioned the word healthy. I've read an article where you've talked about questioning whether it was healthy, that, that drive, and you even said it at the top of, of our conversation. Are you questioning what the motives of that drive were, whether they were healthy motives, whether it was around something that was actually beneficial to you or something maybe that was wrapped up in something we all suffer with, Maybe more ego-driven. You seem to have started to question that. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think that is fair. I think time lends perspective. Um, I think the last two years of reflection post career has been a yeah has been a tricky time. I think it would be it'd be wrong of me to say that I've sort of made the transition easy. I certainly haven't. Um, I think what I found with cricket is that it was both a burden and a, and a passion and a, and a love. I think that the line between success and failure for me was incredibly thin, transparent at times. And I think that is professional sport and I I wouldn't be the first to have said that. However, I found emotionally trying to balance that very, very difficult uh, throughout my career. And and there's no doubt that other players managed it better and others that potentially struggled like I did. I, I think the emotional pull came from this desire and perhaps desperation to succeed. You know, I often get asked growing up, you know, how come I made it? I mean, when I look back at it as a young kid, I mean, there were very talented guys playing in all sorts of representative teams like I was, you know, w- were they more talented than me? Possibly. But what was different? And it's almost like a, it's almost a bit of a graph where you sort of go, as you go up in the years and the, the, the you know, the school to county cricket to, people drop off. And suddenly you stand there, you know, 10 years later and look around and you go, wow, I'm all on my own here. The difference between that is just because I wanted it more. There, there's absolutely no doubt that those guys that I was playing with had the same talent or if, if not en- enough talent. But I wanted it more and that's why I was still standing. And I think... Um, yeah, I, I just think to to come to it, I think it, it was an unhealthy, at times, obsession. And I think that got the better of me. Um, the desperation to succeed, the, the doubt, the low periods when that wasn't happening, would I make it? I mean, through school, the constant question is, would I make it? Would I make it? And if I had a bad practice, it, you know I'd go home feeling hugely insecure. There'd be a lot of self-doubt. And it, it all
1: came back to, would I be good enough one day? Which you were. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> but um, there is something around this desire to prove ourselves, isn't there? And it's not definitely not unique to sports people, but it's almost as if in sport, it's so much more visceral. You're putting yourself literally out there to be judged, to be competing against our fellow man broadcast to millions of people it's not just an inner struggle or an inner achievement that we're trying to do for ourselves we're literally doing it in front of the world or in your case in front of the world and we see don't we a lot of times and i just picking up on cricket specifically we see this the repercussions of that almost there are lots of cricketers who have had issues with mental health i i I often think it's one of the sports where you think okay it's lovely genteel sport and you know we stop for tea it's a very and lunch and it's a very nice you know uh, sport but actually it almost feels like when i read about sportsmen coming out and talking about their struggles uh, mentally both during their careers and post-career it seems to be a lot around cricket and I wonder what that is down to. The pressures you've spoken about, all sports people are under those pressures. Is there any reason? I'm thinking in the past with Marcus Trescothic, more recently, we've had the whole Australian cricket, you know, quite a few Maxwell, Madison, Enrique's coming out talking about the, this issue. Is there something about cricket specifically that really means that we're putting ourselves under undue strain and stress and maybe not listening to our needs? I think there is,
0: Um, and you you make the point well that it is a common thread in in sport, and and particularly in cricket. I think there's been, you know, a lot of this is obviously coming out more and more, and people are, are being more open and honest, and that's great. And I think I've been one of those in terms of, I think one is the time, the time aspect. There's a lot of time to think. I also think it's the one opportunity that you get, um, particularly as the batsman. And that is literally the end of your day. And I think it could be quite a brutal game when you consider some of the greatest ever still fail more times than they succeed. So if you put that into context, it's if you offered someone a job and said, you're going to have 10 year career and you're going to fail more times than you succeed. Are you keen to <laughs> to proceed? There might be a, a couple of days of thought about that or a couple of weeks of thought <laughs> about it before they say yes. So I think that's what you're going into from the start. And then I think the time element and what I mean by that is a sport like rugby or football, which I played a lot of as a kid, you're very much in the moment because it's it's involving running and energy and and adrenaline and what have you. And of course you have moments of that in cricket. However, um the time spent in the changing room, traveling in hotel rooms, um, long periods of doing nothing, long periods of sitting with failure, you know, I think in football the team can win and your failure or perhaps the fact you haven't played so well gets almost nullified because the team have done well. I think in cricket it's on a stat sheet it's it's in front of you you either performed or you didn't and and having spent time with like a, a guy like Marcus Triscothic I played with him at Somerset for five years and was very close to him and he was a, a fantastic guy to, to learn from but I found when I went down there in particular and this is maybe me jumping a little bit ahead but I suddenly found my own mojo in a way and my own connection to to my role and maybe that did come from leaving uh, lords and my grandfather's name etc but once i found that i started to push myself incredibly hard and there was something in the back of my head that knew there would be a fall off i knew deep down that there would be consequences but i always say the analogy it's almost like you're on a train that's going 100 miles an hour you know that it's going to crash at some point and your options are to get off the train but there may not be another train. So you stay on the train and you, and you keep going as far as you can go, but there will be consequences. And, and that's kind of how I felt. And I think when it happened, I had a bit of a crash, I think in 2013, 14, and it was painful and it was hard. And But when you're in it, you keep pushing yourself and you keep driving and it becomes a bit of a drug. You want more. That success is the only thing that starts to make you feel normal. And I, And I said once that, you know, it becomes a very difficult game when you start attaching your own self-esteem to success because, you know, Ron, as you all know, as a family man and, and, and et cetera, you know, whether I score 50, 100 or naught on a cricket field shouldn't really have any bearing on on who I am as a person, you know, whether I'm a good family guy or have lots of friends or, you know, live life the right way. But I started to attach myself to that. So if I if I scored runs, I liked myself. If I didn't, there was a lot of self-loathing and and that comes with with the professions in terms of you know papers get hold of you sponsors want to know you friends suddenly come out of the woodwork so it's so easy to attach yourself to to that feeling and that's where I sort of perhaps talk about the unhealthy element of it because um, once you start going down that route I think you're very much attached to your sport and and as I said before when you're failing quite often more than you're succeeding it's a tough
1: road. What I love about what you've just talked about is the fact that what you're describing and the unique perspective you can give us is because it was so on show because it was in front of an audience, but actually it's broader, isn't it? What you've just talked about being attached to our outcomes, having an identity that is shaped by what we achieve. This is something that anyone can identify with, whether it's their job, whether it's being seen as a pillar of the community, whether it's being seen as the greatest father that's ever lived. The moment we attach our our self-worth, our identity on something external is the moment that we give it away, our potential for happiness. And actually I read Cricket Australia actually after this slew of players have been open and honest and talking about their struggles with, with mental health. I read that they said something like, this is not a sport thing. It's not a cricket thing. It's a society thing. I think they're right. And I think you're hitting that nail on the head. I want to just ask you, taking that logic forward, do you think that it's harder now? And if you were talking to yourself as a young man, would you advise to step off the train or at least to take some time off that train?
0: You know, it's a very, I mean, that's the money question. And I think it's that it, epiphany sort of moment where i think we all have them in life and i think mine came at a, as a young boy i realized and i think my dad and there was a moment where i looked in my my dad's eyes i think i was 12 and i i think i scored my first 100 for example and i remember going up to him afterwards obviously you know chuffed and and proud of myself as he was and i could just see in his eyes a kind of oh dear this boy's got it and there was almost a moment where, is this the route I want him to go on, if that makes sense? Um, because I think there was, you know, without going into sort of family things, I think, you know, Dennis, albeit for his his greatness as a, as a sportsman, you know, um, divorced my grandmother who was South African and she then returned to South Africa with my dad who was five or six years old at the time. So my dad never really had that huge fatherly support. And I think the cricket thing was something that he perhaps hid away from and and I sort of obviously came the generation after and so there was a there was a feeling of you know is this going to be a a good way to to go um and I just remember when I did get the scholarship to harrow um I'd had some anxiety as a kid, and I think that largely was based around separation, so there's almost an irony in the fact that. I went to England to accept, obviously, a, a fantastic opportunity at a great school to get my A levels, et cetera. But I remember thinking, you know, I've got two choices here. And it was, I was a 15, 14 year old boy. And, you know, either I don't go and I stay. And let's be honest, there were some political issues in South Africa and still are. And the opportunity to go to England with the family background was obviously a fantastic one for me. And I remember thinking, I have to do this, I, I have to go if I want to achieve some of the things that I want to. And there was no pressure from my parents to, to either way, but I just knew inside I had to do it. But why, why I say that and, and talking about being on that train, that was the start of the train journey. And I knew it was going to be a very uncomfortable one, given some of the the history, you know, the sort of anxieties that I had and some of the difficulties that perhaps I had. So it almost, you know, when you look at your archetypal sportsman, you see someone as potentially quite hard-nosed, quite tough, Um, emotionally, not hugely emotional, and gets the job done. I think with me, there was this very ambitious, hungry, wanted the world. But then I had a sort of emotional, perhaps, you know, vulnerability is probably a good way of putting it that was going to make that career choice quite tough. I think that was the first part of that epiphany. And I think once I got there, there was a, and now I need to succeed. I don't want to fail, you know? And, and I think as I got to Somerset and was very fortunate to, to play in a great team there, you know, likes of Marcus Triscothic, I think that's when the professional side came together and I found my own identity as a player away from Lords, away from my grandfather, which I never saw as a big noose around my neck, but perhaps it was, perhaps I was kidding myself and perhaps Lords just, there was, too much around that Um, and going down to a place like Somerset, you know, even metaphorically, it's sort of away from London. It's quite quiet, et cetera. But that's when that sort of professional train journey started. And, you know, when you start to find something, my word, you don't want to let go of it. And I, and I guess people in business, et cetera, would, would know the same feeling. I almost felt like I became so entwined in figures and I knew exactly what figures I needed to get. And I became obsessed by those numbers and, you know, you talk when you do talk to businessmen who are at the at the top level, or even cricketers or rugby players. You have to become obsessed with something, and I just think there's a balance between that obsession and falling off that train and hurting yourself. And you know, I I don't think I always got that balance right, and and clearly did find some real struggles in that. And would I have managed things differently? Probably not, <laughs> because and I say that because would I have then achieved some of the heights that I did? Great question. Maybe I would have achieved more, maybe not. But I think that then comes back to the support structures you have around you and to how you balance that pressure of, of of performance. And I think, you know, some some get it right, some manage it better. Alistair Cook was one who, you know, was very, very emotionally balanced. I think that was an innate talent that came a little bit easier for him than, than say, me.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've almost got evolution working against us. In, insofar as we are hardwired, if you like, to look for the short term, to look at the race as a sprint rather than a marathon. So we're always running the sub 10 seconds uh, pace for, uh, for what is, you know, an ultra, ultra, ultra marathon race of life. And, you know, there are reasons behind that. We are programmed to protect ourselves in the here and now. We're programmed for survival. None of that stuff really plays into the long-term game. And I think some of the systems we've built both in life, business, sport, school, you name it, they are geared towards success in the short term. And we often take for granted our emotional needs or our other needs, and we put them to one side and we just focus on that short-term goal, whether it be in your case to play for county, to play for England, to play in the Ashes, whatever it is, that's our kind of short-term goal and that kind of usurps everything else. And it's really, I think, the only one that can change that and to bring that balance that clearly we all need to probably be a better success long-term is ourselves. And I want to just pick up on the the epiphany that you just mentioned. And I want to drill down a bit into that because I know I can tell, and you're a successful sportsman, I can tell that you were driven and that you achieved your goals. And that's got to feel good. I also know that you had wobbles and difficulties. So I'm going to ask you the question for you. Was your epiphany moment picking up a bat or picking up your camera? <laughs>
0: Gee, that's a it's a really tough question. I think why I think that's tough is because I almost see them in two different strands. And I think now that I've really got into got into my photography, I look back and I think that was perhaps the thing that connected me more as a human being and as a person, and was probably took me more into a healthy part of me in terms of um, the travel and the the creativity. And my mom's an artist and my dad was very uh, journalistic. And so I think that was more me as a person. I think the cricket was a a professional, I have to do this. I have to be successful. I have to make it. But I think now when I look back, photography was always very you know and it's only something that's dawned on me recently was something that was very much a part of everything i did and every travel i did i mean i was always taking photos i was always looking for that connection or for that shot um but perhaps never saw it as a career or as a as a huge ambition and i think that's obviously changed now so yes i'm I'm sort of cheating a bit because there's a bit of hindsight involved um but I definitely think that it's, it draws out a different side of, of me. And I think what I'm trying to do and why I think it's been an important epiphany, I think probably more recently is because I realized that it actually attaches to the part of me that I probably disconnected with when I was playing cricket. And it's been a long process trying to detach myself from performance, from cricket. I still find it quite hard watching England play because there's teammates that I played with still playing. And there's part of me that thinks, should I still be there? Could I still be there? Um, but it's the photography and the connection to perhaps the the personality the character and those sides that you know will probably be my future so i think I think it's a it is a tough question to ask I have to say because one was deeply rooted in family in ambition and in, in drive and hunger and success you know, and the other perhaps can encompass all of them and maybe do it in a more healthy way.
1: does that mean that photography Is the real you? Is that am I reading that between the lines there or am I am I being too am I just digging stuff out, isn't there? (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that is
2: I
0: I hope people find quite amusing. I don't know (laughs) if it is. I remember sitting um, in South Africa, we were playing against South Africa, Ben Stokes was sitting next to me and you had Stuart Broad and Anderson and all these great players and I always took my camera on tours. I mean, it was something that instead of playing PlayStation, I would hit the streets of India or Sri Lanka and all these places. And it got me out of my head and out of the hotel and, and connecting with the country I was going to be in. In fact, you know, you, you never quite knew if I was ever going to visit India again as an England cricketer. You know, So I wanted to make the most of, of every opportunity. And I think I
2: remember padding up, getting ready for, I think it was the second innings in, in, in the Wanderers or something. And I had my camera there and I could see Ben Stokes sort of hunched over thinking about something.
0: And I I wanted to take his shot
2: (laughs) more than I was thinking about perhaps performing in the second innings because I thought that's an iconic moment that someone needs to get that. And because there's no photographers in the changing room, like I can get that shot, you know what I mean? So. (laughs) I think, mate, when I did that, I realised the writing was on the wall. Actually, I was probably best placed on the sidelines with a long lens, and I was padding up, padding for England. So, um,
1: did you get the shot? Did you did Did you get your phone or something out? I, I,
2: did, I did get some. Sh- I had my. Ca- I I did get some shots, but there was, there was the balance of what the hell are you doing, mate? You know, <laughs> yeah. taking photos of te- teammates padding up or just getting out. I mean, there was even a yeah. shot. When I, I think Alistair Cook walked back into the change room. I got out before him. I sort of dusted myself down already and it was just an iconic, it would have just been an iconic shot with him sort of with sweat dripping down. And I I thought, mate, you've completely lost it here. You know what I mean? You've got problems. So probably no coincidence that a few months later, I didn't play for England again, but, you know, (laughs) perhaps... um,
1: Not the greatest pitch to the selectors, right? No, no. Kept that to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, sp- talking about your, your, I mean, that that's cracking, by the way. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that what photography means to you and, and what, the place it has, but talking about your photography and looking at your photography, and I, I read a quote where you said, this is taking me out into the wilderness, treasuring wildlife and landscapes, seemingly unaffected by wealth and development. And you do do a lot of observation. There are a lot of portraits and... What I wanted to ask you and really this segue into photography and and I guess realigning purpose post a career where you're retiring early, right? Let's not beat around the bush. You're retiring in your early thirties in a career. That's a short career. We know sports careers are short. So you've, you've realigned your purpose. You're into the photography. You don't need permission to do this anymore. You don't need to hide it away. You can get on with it. And you seem to be drawn to telling stories of people who are under the radar, if you like, um, people who are in developing countries. What is it that draws you to that? What What is it that, because ultimately this is you expressing Nick Compton, as you say, this is true freedom. Yeah. Tell me how that comes through the lens for you. I definitely agree with that. And I, I think
0: that's that's what I've been drawn to. And then I sort of work out well, why is why have I been drawn to that? And I think I've got my father to probably thank for that. Um, I think you've got to remember that, you know, growing up in Durban, where, where I grew up in South Africa, um, my dad was a environmentalist a, a lot of the time. Uh, he was a wildlife TV presenter. He wasn't quite David Attenborough, I must say, but he was, um, he was pretty good. He had his own show on a Sunday evening. And I also know that he resisted apartheid when he was in South Africa at a young age playing sports. So he, he played for one of the black cricket teams. I tried to sort of ask him why he did that. And he found more connection there. Um, some of his best friends from the newspapers where he was working were playing there. And there was definitely, my dad has always had an affinity for the underdog. I think that partly comes from my grandfather as well. My grandfather, for all his, you know, sporting success, et cetera, you know, had an ability to connect with people. And I think that's what made him perhaps be more than a sportsman. I think that's what made him someone that was seen as a character and was adored because he he always made time for, for those perhaps in, in lesser situations. He also obviously had his success during post-war Britain when people were looking for a hero, looking for someone to, to take them away from the so-called depression. And I, I just think it, it's something that it was very evident and visual when I grew up. My dad would take me to parts of Africa, South Africa, would make a connection with that tribesman or would go and do some environmental um, TV program on how this part of South Africa was being affected by something, etc. So his words to me were very much about trying to bring out that personality when photographing someone. And I just think that was a, a connectivity and a, and a feel that was something that really made me f- go beyond the realms of generic. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose photography has many forms and, and feels, but I think for me, that's why going to parts of India, going to parts of Africa and finding that that special look on that person's face that who's lived a very different life to perhaps the fortunate one that I have. Um, And it made me probably feel a bit more alive. I think also the, the textures, the colors and getting more artistic about it are more interesting. Um, You know, you think of a photographer like Steve McCurry, who's, who's done some amazing stuff in in India and, and around the world and the colors and the vibrancy does make you feel alive. I think also the travel aspect. I mean, I was traveling from a young age and I think there's a, there's an excitement about going somewhere new, to pastures new, or places that perhaps haven't been often frequented. I, I think means that you're you're finding new avenues and little coffee shops and cities that you know people don't know about, and and that kind of is where the interest in in the camera and travel and exploring and wandering and you know perhaps there's a deeper metaphor of escapism of of getting away from the insular world of of pressure of cricket of grandfather of lords and these stadiums around me it it was a case of getting out of that and
1: actually being a bit more real i think your story's interesting your family history obviously in that you know your your grandfather was is held up as an english hero of course uh, very english very establishment you mentioned lords and yet here you are his grandson grown up in africa and I think I read you saying, once you've got Africa inside you, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, that is it. And I've been to Africa a couple of times, and I kind of, although I'm not African, I kind of know what you mean. But I think there's an interesting point here, which is about the notions of race and nationality being so fluid. You know, we we often look, don't we, to create systems for ourselves as humans, which are based around man-made ideas that then become somehow become something concrete you know you are the grandson of an English hero and yet you're African and you have Africa in your heart could you just talk to us a bit about what that means and and whether you agree with me about that fluidity of of race and nationality and that kind of almost oneness that I see when I look at your photography and I can see a connection between you and the subject matter even though you know you're not in their position You're not Sri Lankan, you're not Indian, and yet there is that sense of oneness almost. I agree, and I think it's
0: probably the one thing that I, I wouldn't say I'm proud of, but it's the one thing that I feel perhaps has made me feel a bit more than just a cricketer from an early age people would ask me, who do you want to play for, England or South Africa? And, you know, I think today even people ask me, and and I'm very honest about that. I mean, I'm I'm British, I'm I'm English, my whole family is originally British and English. I I guess I grew up in South Africa, and that's just how it is. When you do come from a place like South Africa, which has obviously that rich cultural sort of heritage background and the concept of race, et cetera, I, I feel quite... I'm not saying I get angry about it, but I... I was so connected to being in with the Zulus or the coloreds in, in Durban. I mean, a cricket and sport obviously does that in a, in a natural way. It combines races, people, colors, gender. It doesn't really matter. And I think that was something that was quite important to me. My, my best friends were of different, you know, social demographic backgrounds. And I, and I, and I felt other friends would more sort of perhaps just stick to, you know, their schooling kind of, demographic and and for me i'd like to go beyond that i i very much feel like the best times i had in a cricket shirt funnily enough and don't get me wrong scoring 100 for england or beating india and or south africa abroad you know we're we're obviously professionally the greatest moments i had but actually the the moments that touched my heart the most was when i played as the overseas player in zimbabwe i was the only um one of the few white guys in the team and probably in the competition and and again in sri lanka i was the only white guy in the whole competition and for me those were the greatest moments because there was such a an opportunity to to really make a difference and to show that it actually it is fluid it actually makes no difference whatsoever and i think south africa has definitely given me that sense of feel and going to parts of africa where you'll know i mean the smells the colors the touch the the people the the lifestyle it's just different it's it's hard to explain um, the, england and south africa are very different there are some commonalities of course um but I think once you're there, once you've you've grown up in that sort of sense of freedom and there's probably a lack of regulation over there, that there's that, that there's something about it that, you know, only someone who's grown up there perhaps would would understand. And I think there's something that p- partly makes you feel more alive and, and more connective and, and the fact that whether it's, you know, colour comes into it, it never has for me. You know, I've always been very proud of the work I've done in, in those communities or gone and helped poorer cricketing nations or gone to Kenya and helped, you know what I mean? I've always felt a, a real connection with that. And um, that does come from growing up in a place like South Africa. And it, it makes you appreciate that probably a lot more.
1: It's so short-sighted, isn't it? Having these barriers between us or these, these imagined barriers. I mean, you don't have to read too much up about the history of our human species to, to know that we're all from Africa and that we all... Have travelled throughout the world, but as one race and one species, and that's the end of it. You know, there's not there's nothing more to it than that. So when I look at, you, I'd love to talk about your photography a little bit more, if if I may. When I look at it, and I I look at the the work in in Kenya, and um, there's obviously photos you've talked about from the Indian subcontinent as well. There, there seems to be something that you're documenting because you seem to be drawn to the kind of areas where real life is going on. And of course, that's where you're going to get the richest photographic subject matter, of course. But is there a story you're trying to tell through your photography by doing this? Is there a particular narrative that keeps popping up about the story you're maybe trying to tell?
0: Yeah, I think there is. I almost feel like collating all these bodies of work is, is another job in itself. And I think by going through it, there's almost a therapy and it's quite therapeutic in itself because I'm now almost looking back on a life of photography, but also my own life. And there's a narrative that is without doubt coming through that. And I, I guess that starts to build up and starts to resonate more. Whereas I think in the moment, if you, if you drop me off in Kenya, I, I go with what my eye takes. People say, what do you photograph? And I say everything. I mean, sure there'll be moments where i start to perhaps refine that and and find more of a a genre that perhaps you know is something i want to focus on but i think for the time being whether it be connecting with an animal's eye or a young kid that i just catch out of the corner of my eye and i I think i very much allow my instincts to guide me and i think you then look back and, and think why are my instincts guiding me there I think one one of that is visual. I think I see something that catches my eye. I think there's a there's whether it's a texture or a color or a boy's face or a man's face and the lines and textures on his face tell a story. but I think people have perhaps reflected to me is that they see quite a lot of emotion and spirituality in in some of the faces and subject matters and I think that probably because I'm deep down probably a bit more emotional than than some Um, not I mean not in a comparison but I'm quite emotional if I just put it that way in some ways I think I feel a lot I think I'm looking for connection that goes beyond the aesthetics or the superficial that's a good photo if that makes sense I think for me it has to have something else so whether it be in that boy's face you know whether it be talking to him and really understanding where he's come from and what has his life been about and i think when you do that i think you can feel that through a good photo because that connection is there rather than just going up and taking a photo with a long lens i mean anyone can do that right Um, but i think it's the ability to get close to your subject matter and connect with him that that then means more about that photo yes you want it to look aesthetically good for for people but fundamentally, it's got to mean something to me. I've got to look back and think, wow, what an experience that was. And the same would be said for animals and also the landscapes. You know, the landscapes, I think, I want people to feel like, while they may not be there, it makes them think what it would like to be there. What, what? Maybe that, you know, in a world of COVID and, and isolation and being cooped up in houses and stuff, you know, perhaps those landscapes make people think, gee, that is just freedom. That is, I need to get out there. I need to be in that place or I need to connect with those people. And, and I think, as you said earlier on, it's there's probably the longing inside me as a kid for normality as well. What impact did my grandfather have on me at an early age? Um, I probably don't even know the answer to that. You know, I, I probably don't even know what those big photos at home and above dad's bed of him hitting the winning runs and, you know, being the Brill Cream boy. And, you know, and then I came here and did my ego carry a, get me carried away? Probably, you know, did I see that as, as success? And anything underneath that just wasn't tolerated. And unfortunately, coming back to the healthy thing, that wasn't healthy because anything that wasn't Brian Lara, Sachin Tendulkar was a failure. It just wasn't good enough. It didn't matter who told me it was or who told, you know, it wasn't good enough. And I think maybe the photography is maybe getting closer to just being normal and being with people with real stories and lives and emotions. So I I think that's probably what I'm starting to really attach myself and, and maybe you're right. It is the real me. It is the it is letting go of that ego and of that thing we call success. What is success? I mean, what, what is it? I mean, you know, was I successful? I don't know, you know, cause, cause was, was I really that happy playing cricket? I don't really know. Um, but yeah, I got a couple of test hundreds and achieved some things, but you know, I probably don't look at, I won't say it here, because people will probably get angry. I think there's a lot of people who would have pinched themselves to achieve some of the things I did, but I still feel sitting here, there was more in me. I wanted more, you know, and I could have achieved more and 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 I'm starting to let go of that now. And I think you're right, touching with these more spiritual, emotional places and 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 you know, is probably doing that.
1: I like what you're saying about your story, and I like you know something's driving you, and you know it's truth, and you're kind of rationalizing, post-rationalizing almost what it is, and it's that journey that I think is so useful that you're articulating for all of us and for perhaps those listening that says that you're you're openly saying, hey, I haven't worked it out, but I'm following this and I'm giving myself the right to, to be able to step off the train and just see where it takes me without a huge agenda, without having to hit Pre made goals, you know, that idea that we've always got to be achieving something, doing something bigger, doing something better. I think what you're articulating is that journey that we're all on as human beings, but we kind of feel like a lot of the time we've got to hide it. We've got to hide the fact that we don't know what tomorrow looks like or what it might bring. But actually, that's the place where we can find truth and purpose. I want to talk about Africa a bit more. And you just mentioned there your journey and your photography being your ability maybe to tell other people's stories in, in a way that you can then, you know, tell your own story. And, and how does that connect with you and your experience? Every time I go to Africa, I get that feeling that you're talking about. And it's similar to the feeling that I get when I go to India, that freedom, those colours, that vibrancy that we just can't help but get inside you somehow, and you come home and it's still there and it's amazing. I get very angry when I tell those stories, though, and I was there documenting people's lives, and I get very angry because I'm thinking, this continent is amazing. The thing that's letting it down is the mismanagement of these countries, There's this kind of man-made you know, bureaucracy that's messing it all up. I see almost, and I see in some of your images, it reminds me, Largely, these are hunter-gatherer people living in a way that's healthy. They're outdoors. The community side of it is amazing, as you say. They're also interdependent. Stuff that we are missing here in the industrialized world, but it feels like because we've colonized that continent in the West, we've imposed this industrialized system, which is at odds with their hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And I see that hardship that that brings. I see it a bit in, in some of your photography as well, although it's vibrant and lively, you can't miss you know, the decaying buildings. I'm looking at a little girl here stood in front of decaying buildings. And that to me makes me angry when I go to the developed world. Does that have any play in your heart as an African person? And as somebody who sees both sides, obviously with your family history and the amount of time you've lived here since you were at school here, d- does that ever have an have an effect on you?
0: Well, it's, the, it's almost the juxtaposition, isn't it? You you sometimes have the new developed world trying to integrate itself into Africa. I mean, you know, the investment from China for etc. and, you know, having spent some time in Kenya, there's, you get the old with the new and you get the hunter gatherer with the, the sort of mobile phones and the modern, and that is the world that we're in now. And I, I think some are trying to play catch up. And, and of course, in the developing world, they don't have the same means that that we have. And I think for me, it probably goes beyond that. I think my grandfather for one always had that affinity for the underdog. My dad did. And, you know, there's probably no coincidence that I've, when you say charity work, I don't really like that word so much. I I see it as more connecting and helping people that can be influenced by perhaps, you know, sport, for example, by perhaps cricket or photography and, it makes me want to, I mean, it's quite prevalent, the conversation, because I'm looking at trying to do something more from a charitable point of view. And again, charity, trust, foundation, whatever it may be, to use the fact that that sport is obviously connect. It does connect people end of story. Um, And how can I, without trying to be too cliched about it, perhaps go back to some of these communities and be able to touch, you know, whether it be some of those Zimbabweans that I played cricket with or in Sri Lanka, who have less, who have come from poorer communities, who have stories and lives. And there's absolutely something there that when you say, what do I see? I think that's what I see. And I mean, the East African Character Development Trust, who I went out with to support in Kenya, you know, they use sport to teach character to, to help develop young people in slum areas. And, you know, that was, an incredible thing when you think of the journey some of those kids have come through, you know, and some of them now are playing sport or playing for Kenya under 19. And you think they didn't even know what cricket was four years ago. They've never even seen a cricket bat where even had a pair of shoes and, you know, you can't fix everything. And, and there's people doing some incredible work around the world and how to do it differently. I don't think there is a way of doing it differently. I think it's just trying to do it in a way that obviously sits with my passion and, and you know, can, I can create sort of whether it be awareness or, or or money or fund, you know, to to bring something to those parts of the world, I think is obviously something that I have been passionate about and and will continue to be. So, yeah, I think it's that juxtaposition that you talk about, which is quite evident now and it sounds like in some of the trips that you've done as well.
1: Yeah, it's a shame to see one ideology imposed on on another and then to see, you know, the fruits of that. I think uh, it's something – it's a big question, of course. It's something – we need to address i think as a, as on a human level but it yeah it's it's sad to see it and it it does kind of it does make me frustrated when i when i visit family and friends overseas in, in places like india nick it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you i think some of your words have really resonated with me i think your story has almost been a modern life in under a microscope you know and we can learn so much from that because we all live what you're describing. It's just been almost condensed and, and more acute for you. And I think we can learn a lot from, from that, even if we haven't experienced it. Where can people check your work out, look at your photography, see your exhibitions? read a bit more about you where can they find out more about what you're up to
0: oh thanks I mean I, I've got a website nickcompton.com where you can find out more about me and my cricket and obviously fundamentally my photography I'm, I'm doing two exhibitions at the moment one's through the other art fair and that's uh, my Saatchi art profile so there's a you go into Saatchi um and my profile's on there and uh of course, Instagram, you know, I, I try and give a sort of visual representation of the things that really capture my eye and interest me. And, and I hope to take that further, both on a ph- photographic level, but I think also in trying to connect with more human instincts and and travel and things that I think a lot of us um, can connect with deep down amidst this chaotic world that we're kind of in at the moment you know i think we all need a breathing space and i think it's for me and it's been photography it's been art it's been creativity and i I hope that resonates with the people who like my work you know because i think that's that's the purpose of it
1: nick thank you so much for speaking to me today on self-centered hi Rowan here again I just wanted to ask a simple favor now since i set out to do this podcast series my ambition has always been to provide a new narrative a different storyline that gives people permission to act on their own terms a message that's perhaps counter to the accepted norms accepted norms that maybe don't serve us and i'm doing this because i believe in fact i know there are people who are unsatisfied with the way things work at the moment. What's expected of them, what's going on around them, what's going on in the world, what they need to do every day just to make a living and survive. Now I believe that everyone has the right to live and work from a place of purpose. And so I'm trying to get this message out to the benefit of as many people who need to hear it as possible. So I wanted to ask you, if you find these podcasts useful, whether you'd be willing to recommend self Center to just one other person that you think might benefit from listening this week. I'd really appreciate it. I hope they'll appreciate it. I hope you'll feel good for doing it. And I'd just like to thank you again for listening and supporting the series so far.